Hi, Habibis. Thank you for supporting Habibti, please. It's really sweet and it helps keep the show going. I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti, please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. The network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media throughout Canada. Harbinger is listener-supported. You can access subscriber-specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and hit subscribe. Habibti, please also collaborates regularly with Canadian Dimension on a number of episodes, including this one. Founded in 1963, Canadian Dimension is the longest standing voice of the left in Canada. Canadian Dimension is a forum for debate on important issues facing the Canadian left today and a source of analysis of national and regional politics, labour, economics, world affairs and art. You can find them online by heading to CanadianDimension.com. Hi everyone, this is a very special episode today that my friend and I recorded, uh, my friend Jen B.M. Nevin, who you've heard before, and it's an episode that features Paul Rogers and Jeremy Corbyn, and we're talking about an event, and so Jen B.M. is going to brief us a bit about this event, and it's called Selling Death. Jen B.M., how did this event come together, and tell us about it? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me, and it's been an honor to, to co-host this episode. Um, yeah, we're really excited to be doing this event um, on Saturday, July 17th, so this coming Saturday at 4 p.m. London time, which is 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's a collaboration between the Jeremy Corbyn Peace and Justice Project and also Egypt Watch and features speakers around the world who are academics and activists primarily on the arms trade. And it really kind of aims to shed light on how um, the military industrial complex operates, how we can kind of all work together to end endless wars and and push back against this war promoting industry. So we're going to hear from speakers primarily from the Middle East, but also here in Canada as well, and and from the UK and across Europe. And we're going to be talking about the disastrous consequences of the arms trade in places like Egypt, Yemen and Palestine, and how we all must come together to instead fight for peace, human rights and democracy. And why do you think it's very important that we have these conversations? Here in Canada, I think people don't really realize the extent to which that our Canadian government is is selling weapons overseas, especially to countries like Israel and like Saudi Arabia that are uh, engaged in the ongoing violations of human rights, both in Yemen and in Palestine. And I think all coming together and in hearing from people who have been working or directly impacted by these issues is the only way that we're able to kind of build solidarity to push back against this nebulous of selling and buying weapons around the world. I hope people enjoy the episode and we will be featuring hopefully more guests from this panel and from this larger project on Hibbity Please for the next little bit of time. Thanks everyone. Uh, Stay tuned and check out the show notes for information on how to attend this virtual event. That looks fantastic. And to listen to Paul and Jeremy talk about the event. So in this episode, we interviewed Jeremy Corbyn. The man needs no introduction, but we feel like he should have some honor to like the history that he's had in leftist organizing. And so Jeremy Corbyn served as leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition from 2015 to 2020. There was so much youth support for him and beyond youth support for him that many of us know and care about. And are, he inspired so many of us. And he has represented Islington North since 1983. He's a lifelong campaigner for peace and justice, holding roles in the anti-apartheid movement the campaign for nuclear disarmament and stop the war coalition as labor leader he oversaw 
oversaw the development of a comprehensive program to rebuild the UK economy, transfer wealth and power from the few to the many, tackle poverty and division, put Britain at the forefront of confronting the climate emergency, and pursue a peace and rights-based foreign policy. Jeremy also received the Gandhi International Peace Award in 2013 and the Sean McBride Peace Prize in 2017. We really hope people enjoy this episode and attend the event on the 17th. And my co-host this week is friend of the show and former guest, Genevieve Nevin. Jeremy, thank you for coming on today. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to come on. It's an absolute honor. Can you tell us a bit about the Peace and Justice Project and how it came to be? We founded the project uh, last January, having announced it in December. And it is, uh, as its name indicates, a project to sustain the arguments for peace and for economic justice around the world, and obviously based in UK, very much in line with all the policies that uh, we promoted during the time that I was leader of the Labour Party in Britain. So it is about redistribution of economic power and wealth. It is about social justice, environmental justice, and human rights. And we've set ourselves four big areas of work. And one is uh, media, because I do think the questions of access and control to the media and the directions in which algorithms send so many people when they think they're searching for independent information means that we do have to have a much more uh, sceptical eye on on what much of the media say. So we're challenging issues of media ownership, but we're also promoting grassroots activity. And last weekend, we set up the first two of what are going to be many, probably dozens, if not more than that, of news clubs in towns around Britain, where we invited people who are supporters of the project to come along, look at issues of local news, look at issues of access to news and information, challenge things locally. And then we're building that up to a much bigger national event in October, which we'll be launching in Manchester, the People's History Museum there. The idea being to build up an alternative media system and alternative media news sources. And we're working with established uh, independent groups like Navara Media, Double Down News, and so many others. And of course, many friends uh, like your good self that we have in Canada and other countries. And so it's uh, exciting and very important work. And very quickly, the other three areas of work of the project are economic justice. The corona crisis has actually redistributed power and wealth enormously in my country and around the world, but all in the wrong direction. There are now more billionaires than ever and more people relatively poor than have been for a very long time. And so we are challenging the government on ending the furlough scheme, on cutting what's called universal credit in Britain. It's called different things in other countries, benefits. But it's also about uh, supporting unions, fighting against fire and rehire, where the entire workforce is dismissed and replaced with uh, the same workforce, but on lower wages and worse working conditions, shorter holidays, loss of leave for maternity, paternity, and all those kind of issues. So we're on that. Third area is environmental sustainability, green New Deal, and we're promoting green sustainability and job protection in uh, places where there are polluting industries need to be replaced with green industries. And we're having a big event in Cornwall later this month in the southwest of England. And lastly, it's international justice. It's solidarity with people. It's about human rights. It's about 
refugees. It's about arms sales and the way in which Britain, for example, sells a huge amount of weaponry to Saudi Arabia, knowing full well it's going to be used in Yemen. We've sold a lot of weaponry to Israel, knowing full well it was used in the bombing of Gaza. And so we have to face up to the consequences of what the arms trade is about. This isn't to threaten the jobs of people that work in um, defence and aerospace industries. It's about job conversion and it is about industrial conversion. And so during my time as leader, we said we'd protect all these jobs and then move on to producing different goods. So it is about providing security for the workforce at the same time as wanting to change the product. And if we don't do that, then we won't get much of a hearing anywhere. And that leads us really well into our our second question um, about the event that we're having on Saturday. So selling death in in collaboration with Egypt Watch, why the arms trade must be controlled. So can you tell us a little bit more about this event and and why you think it's going to be so important? When we launched our project in January, we had a huge global call for it, as well as a large number of people in Britain. And there's over 50,000 signed up to the project in Britain, but many more are signing all the time and getting involved in local activities and events. And an issue that keeps coming up is that if we're protesting about the war in Yemen, as we are, protesting about the bombing of Gaza, as we do, protesting about issues in Myanmar and many other places, then you have to ask yourself the question, what are we doing about it? And if at the same time Britain is um, selling arms to those places, then we are complicit in it. So Britain gives a lot of money to support rehabilitation and rebuilding and uh, in Yemen. I support that. That's fine. But if we're subsidising the destruction in the first place, it seems to me more than double standards. And so we were having this seminar in which we've got some wonderful people coming along. You did discussed this with Paul Rogers earlier, who was an emeritus professor of peace studies at the University of Bradford. And uh, Andrew Feinstein, who's a former South African MP, who challenged Jacob Zuma on issues of arms sales and challenged his government, even when he was a member of parliament in that same party. He now lives in London and works very closely with us. And so they, and we've invited on to it groups like Campaign Against the Arms Trade and others, to seriously look at the connection between defence contracts, arms sales and abuse of human rights. The government always claims that it only sells arms in, in within international law and they're not designed for internal repression. Well, they may not be designed for internal repression, but they're often used for internal repression. And so the whole question is the corruption that goes with the arms trade, the huge... Um, pressures that are on those arms companies to accept backhanders in return for deals or the other way around. Well, it's got to be challenged. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing. Our project exists to ask the awkward questions. One thing that I think in Canada has the same issue with selling arms. Trudeau has been asked about this arms sale to Saudi Arabia. So I appreciate contextualizing about how the weapons are actually used. And In 2003, you spoke at the largest political demonstration in the history of England against the Iraq war. You connected a number of struggles in the speech. You mentioned that there's a brutal number of deaths in Iraq that has occurred, and it is now 2021, and the ramifications of the Iraq war will be felt forever by the Iraqi people. Why is it important for progressives to fight for disarmament, and why is it important for uh, you in the UK, and how should people go about that? This has been a very interesting week in international affairs in that um, the US and British governments have announced they're completely withdrawing from Afghanistan. I hope that is the case and they do completely withdraw from Afghanistan. 
The question I asked the Prime Minister in Parliament on Thursday when he made this statement was quite simply this. We went into Afghanistan in 2001 on the basis of a war against the Taliban because of the terrible events that happened in New York. And here we are, 20 years later, when the Prime Minister himself says the only way for a long-term sustainable government in Afghanistan is if it includes the Taliban. Well, just think that one through. We went to war against the Taliban, and we're now saying that there has to be a government in Afghanistan that includes the, the Taliban. Well, obviously, there has to be some kind of internal settlement in Afghanistan, and that is actually up to the Afghan people to decide on that settlement. The presence of American, British, and other troops there has cost thousands of lives. 450 British lives have been lost in Afghanistan, far more American lives, and far, far, far more Afghan lives have been lost there. And all over the world, there are Afghan refugees. They turn up in London, desperate people escaping a desperate situation. This was supposed to be a war that sorted all this out. It's done the opposite. But Who's done well at the war? All those billions that have been spent have paid for planes, for Humvees, for guns, for weapons, for, for landmines, and so on and so on and so on. And here we are now, 20 years later, realizing it's not worked. After that came the Iraq war and all the lies leading up to the Iraq war. At that enormous rally, which I was one of the organizers of, I remember it like it was yesterday, I said, the war in Iraq will begat the wars of tomorrow, the terrorism of tomorrow, the refugee flows of tomorrow, the hatred of tomorrow. It won't all go away. And here we are now, all these years later, refugee camps at bursting point all over the region, particularly in Libya, and many refugees dying in the seas trying to get to various European shores. That is what that war did. Had the governments listened to what people had said and not gone to war, because most European European governments didn't, the German government didn't, the French government didn't, the Spanish government basically lost office on that, but on that whole issue, it would have been a very, very different story in Iraq. And I just think we need to reflect that when politicians wrap themselves up in a flag, announce their country is under threat when it obviously wasn't, and go to war, who makes the money out of it? And who loses their lives? It's working class young men and women that get sent into conflict and die. It is wealthy people in boardrooms that are not dying at all. And it's politicians mouthing all kinds of nationalist platitudes in parliaments that don't suffer at all. We've got to challenge this. Surely there's a better and a different way of doing things. And that comes from human rights, from justice, from equality, from investment, from protection of living standards and of our natural world. I mean, so much of what you're saying really is, is resonating now with, with the pandemic, bringing these issues that have always existed really to the fore. And so what you've been talking about, uh, as, such as war and economic and environmental crises, and just really how the, the Peace and Justice Project illustrates how these domestic and international problems and injustices cannot be separated. So our, our question kind of to this end is how, how do we go about building solidarity beyond borders and also across communities? We support people who are going through very difficult circumstances, irrespective of whether the world's media think they're important or not. The crisis in Myanmar doesn't really get as much publicity as it ought to. It gets some, but not as much as it should. And uh, the military have taken over, and the military are behaving in a very brutal manner. 
We've had a number of meetings with friends in Myanmar, and we're supporting the trade unions in Myanmar. We're trying to both protect jobs and protect the rights of workers there. So that's a sort of practical act of solidarity. We're doing the same with other union organizations and groups around the world and working in solidarity with those that are fighting back against lawfare in Latin America. And so through our colleagues in Progressive International, we've sent observers to the elections in Ecuador, in Peru and in Bolivia. And we're working with people all over the world on those issues. We've also done a lot of work with um, the supporting the farmers in India who are incredibly um, dedicated to try to protect the farming system in India from global corporations taking it over. And they called the biggest strike in world history, where over 250 million people went out on strike in solidarity with them at one point during it. So we're working with them and also with those that are trying to protect the natural environment in India against the ravages of what are going to be agribusiness moving into India, as indeed the World Bank and IMF have tried to get them to move into agriculture in Africa and all over Latin America. So the real struggles of today are as much as anything about commercial power. The military power sometimes makes way for the commercial power, but it's the commercial power over poorer countries that is so important. So that solidarity of workers across frontiers is so important. And that's what we're campaigning on. You have spoken about arms sales to Saudi Arabia and Israel that fuels the deaths of Yemeni and Palestinian people and the campaigns to stop the sales of arms to both of these nations globally is pretty significant and thousands of lives have been lost and thousands of young people's lives have been stunted by this even after alleged ceasefires. The detritus of war and occupation will always linger and as you've mentioned as leader of labor you also oppose this. So what what would an arms conversion program look like and what can members of civil society continue to do to push back in this? I think we have to look at what the needs are in our society and look at where the production capability is. The defense industries are very efficient in what they produce, very technically advanced, and quite brilliant at some of the products they make. Incredible. We don't have to have all that skill in making weapons of mass destruction. That skill can also make efficient, sustainable fishing vessels. It can also make efficient, sustainable transport systems. It can also be used in development of efficient and sustainable housing systems. There's so much that can be done by the skills of those in the defence industry uh, if they're directed in that way. But if the only way forward is to make weapons, because that's what the governments subsidise them for doing, and at the same time, this massive lobby by the arms industry, who endlessly talk about the dangers of conflicts in various parts of the world like they welcome them then we end up on a sort of roller coaster on both sides of a potential conflict spending more and more money on arms the tensions in central europe on the borders of ukraine and the rest of europe and of course the borders with russia of the baltic states are huge. The tensions between India and China are huge. And the development of a defence alliance between India, Britain, Australia and the United States in order to put more ships into the South China Sea, that both of those pressures are met by the equivalent in Russia of the Russian arms industry pressurising Putin to spend more on arms because they've got to get ready for this Western pressure. Same thing happens in China. There is a sort of built-in accelerator on both sides of any conflict. Surely the way forward 
forward ought to be greater power and influence the United Nations to deal with these conflicts and these pressures. And also get ourselves away from the concept that one nation has to be the world's leader. No, they don't have to be the world's leader. The forum of the United Nations should be the world's leader. That should be where the world's leadership comes from. And if you think of the amount of money that is now invested in high-tech arms industries in a lot of countries in the world, but particularly Western Europe, USA, Russia, and China, and then look at the global needs following the COVID pandemic or during the COVID pandemic, and also other pandemics like the AIDS pandemic and others, you're going to deal with those by investment in medical research and universal health care. That's surely the general direction we should go in as a world. Real security doesn't come from the ability to kill other people. Real security is when you know you've got a health service, you've got a house to live in, you've got enough food, and your children are going to get a schooling, are going to get health care and are going to get jobs and your elderly parents are going to get care. That's what real security is. And what a line to end on about real security and what real security means. Uh, we really appreciate that you joined Hub 50 Please today for this episode and we hope folks will join all the great panelists we've been hosting on this podcast and we'll be hosting on Saturday and Genevieve and I will put that in the show notes. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for joining us on Hub 50 Please podcast. Genevieve and Nashua, thank you so much for inviting me onto your program this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you both. And one day, post-COVID, we'll all meet in reality, in, per- in person, and we can share coffee together. Paul Rogers is an Ametrius Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. He is a biologist by original training, lecturing early on at Imperial College and also working as a senior scientific officer in government services in East Africa. For the past 40 years, he has worked on international and environmental security and has written or edited 30 books. He is currently an international security advisor to Open Democracy, and in the late 1990s, he wrote Losing Control, Global Security in the 21st Century, which was years, if not decades, ahead of its time. This book looks at the forward to the 2030s and 2040s as the decades that will see a showdown between a bitter, environmentally wrecked and deeply insecure world and a possible world order rooted in justice and peace. Thank you. And welcome to the show, Paul. Can you tell us a bit about the work you're involved in and why you think fighting for disarmament is so important? I look at the changing causes of international conflict, not just conventional state-on-state conflict, but all the different problems we've had, particularly in the last 20 years or so. So I'm certainly looking at the way that all the major wars that the West has fought in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, and more recently again in Iraq against ISIS and in Syria, they've all failed in different ways. And what I'm interested in is how we change the nature of our attitude to war and, in fact, our nature of our attitude to security. It seems to me that in the coming years, the really big problems we're going to face in the world are not state on state. Uh, We see one example now, a worldwide problem with the the COVID pandemic, which is not amenable to to using arms. You can't securitize it. And if you can't do that, then you certainly can't do it with climate breakdown. The climate breakdown is the big common threat to all of us. So what I'm interested in is changing attitudes to security, whether you could rethink what we mean by security. That, of course, means going head to head with what we call the military industrial complexes and the way in which our thinking about security is rooted 
in a very old tradition, which just isn't appropriate. In many ways, I'd even go as far as to say that in a real sense, war as a concept is becoming obsolete. It's going to take a lot of effort to make sure that people realize that. Yeah, that's excellent. And I know you've been um, advising on, on foreign policy and international security issues from quite some time. Uh, have you noticed things change and what particular challenges and maybe even opportunities do you notice about this particular juncture in time? Things have certainly changed a lot. I mean, if you look at the early part of the 21st century, that was the era when uh, basically problems like terrorism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS and the rest were seen as problems in which you basically responded by using huge amounts of military force, thousands, tens of thousands, over 100,000 boots on the ground. That has really failed dismally. And we're now in this extraordinary position where the West is pulling out of Afghanistan as the Taliban more or less move in. And I think what has changed really is an appreciation that you can't win in the traditional way. But the problem is we're finding other ways to do it. So we've moved into an era of remote warfare. We use drones, we use special forces, we use standoff weapons, we use local militias. We have very few of Western troops on the ground. And so it doesn't mean that we've come to terms with what we really mean by security. But the point is you can focus on the failures and the obvious fact that in fact, what we're doing at present is not working. We're not living in a safer world. You spoke to it a little bit earlier, but we're in the middle of an intersecting social and climate crisis, as well as the COVID-19 crisis. And you recently wrote a piece about the UK's government's response to COVID so far. And how do you see these issues as interconnected? Because uh, we're based in Canada right now, and and Jen and I, we, we see the same connections, I think, but we would love to hear how you're connecting them. Well, I think the point about COVID first is that this can only be handled in a public health way, and it has to be global. It can't be just national. The biggest single requirement at the moment is to get global vaccination against COVID-19 as soon as possible. Because what is happening now is it is still spreading. The new variants are coming in, whether it's Delta, whether it's Lambda and the rest. And they are obviously more potent in terms of being more infectious. And what we're getting is a continuing pool, a sort of giant pool of viruses in which mutation is possible. And unless we actually get worldwide vaccination, we're not going to get on top of that. And the the trouble is we're just not connected. We're not joined up as an international community. Britain is particularly in a dangerous position because our current government believes that you go for essentially what is called herd immunity. You go to the state where everybody becomes naturally protected by just the having experienced some of it. But epidemiologists regard that as sort of quite futile, stupid in many ways. But the government is going ahead and I think they will find it's going to be extremely difficult to do what they want. So overall, I think we have priorities here which can only come through international cooperation. That applies even more so to climate breakdown. We simply cannot really come up against what that means unless we realise you have to work together and it has really very little, if, if anything, to do with the military. You can't defend against it. You can't nuke a virus. You can't sort of use aircraft carriers to get rid of climate breakdown. And as has been seen in Canada so recently, it is now having a very real effect in many parts of the world. Even in the last five or ten years, that has changed. You mentioned the importance of vaccinations, not just in like the imperial core in countries like Canada and of course the UK where, where you're based but how do you see kind of global solidarity instead of this kind of rush to buy arms and to bomb places as kind of the impetus behind all of this linking both the response to the climate crisis and also the COVID-19 pandemic? Well where we are in terms of traditional culture if I can use that term is we still see it in terms of the sort of state-centered base 
And what we have to face up to is that in any country with a sizable military and arms industries, it has a military industrial complex. And there's also a worldwide military industrial complex as well. Now, obviously, we are in an era where the great majority of the world's arms industries have been privatized. So inevitably, they have to make a profit. It's shareholder capitalism, absolutely, as you would expect in that. And the problem is that really comes first. But it goes more than that. Uh, if you use the phrase the military industrial complex, a better phrase is military industrial bureaucratic government academic complex. It's basically a large creature in any one country, people working as far as they see legitimately, often with support from labor unions. But the point it is quite closed and it forms extremely powerful lobbies. But it is considering things in terms of traditional security. It is often very male-centered. In fact, there's almost a sense of hegemonic masculinity across the whole complex. But what we have is an attitude, a culture, which is very difficult to counter. But the first thing, of course, is to understand it and to realize what you have to do to change it round. We do have advantages. We can point to the stupidity of wars that have been fought recently. We can point to the need for arms diversification, move away from the production of arms. And we can point to the need for far greater international cooperation. In some ways, COVID is the kind of canary in the coal mine. It's the warning of how things will get if we see climate change in the same way and we don't cooperate. It's going to be a very difficult period the next 10 or 20 years, but there's every chance we can do it. Huge changes can be made, but it is not going to be easy. And in many ways, the arms trade is almost the epitome of what has gone wrong. Therefore, this conference, I think, is hugely important because it's focusing on that particular issue. Jen touched on your book a little bit at the beginning, and we wanted to ask you a little bit more. The original version of this book was written in the 1990s, and many have said you are years, if not decades ahead, and you predicted, in a way, the 9-11 attacks, the endless war on terror, and the relentless increase in revolts from the margins and bitter opposition to wealthy elites. In this new edition, you've expanded the original analysis, looking forward for us for the, the 2030s and the 40s and our environment is wrecked and ravaged. And that's not to say there's no hope to reverse this, but clearly there needs to be more movement from governments. And so I, I wonder, can you expand for us more about what you're speaking to in this iteration of losing control and how in this deeply insecure world, we can kind of find justice and peace again, if you think there's a way to? I'm sure there's a way to find justice and peace again. When I wrote Losing Control in the 1990s, what I was saying was that the really major problems facing the world were growing socioeconomic divisions with more and more people across the world on the relative margins, coupled with an era in which we're facing environmental limits to growth. And I then argued that the ways in which relatively weaker parts of the world could actually act against the stronger parts, the more powerful parts, and pointed to the way that was already happening in the 1990s, including the first attempt to destroy the World Trade Center back in February 1993. So the book basically argued we were missing the point by concentrating on states. It was published a few months before 9-11 and rather sank like a stone, sadly, until 9-11. And then people were far more interested. It went into a couple of foreign editions and I wrote a couple of extra chapters to sort of add to it shortly afterwards. I went back to it a year or two ago with the publishers and they said, look, don't just add chapters to basically do essentially a new book, which is what I tried to do. So essentially, it takes that original analysis, points out how sadly it turned out to be right. It actually predicted a 9-11 event and predicted that would lead to a war on terror. And I said, it's turned out to be right. And these are the reasons because of the nature of our military culture always the tendency to sort of hit back. I call it lidism. You keep the lid on things rather than going to the underlying reasons for the problem. 
Is it possible to turn this around? Yes, it certainly is. And in some areas, a huge amount of progress has been made. We are far more in a position to really get a handle on the underlying causes of climate breakdown, that is carbon emissions. We can move beyond fossil carbon, given the political will can be done really very quickly. There isn't enough political will yet, but there might yet be. On the bigger issue of what is causing socioeconomic divisions, that is a harder nut to crack because we're dealing with the neoliberal transition which came in the 1980s and is still very much with us with a few modifications. It is also the tricky one to deal with the third, basically crippled paradigm of security. But we have to do it. And in some ways, I think people are now at last waking up to how serious climate breakdown is. And for some people, at least, they see connections with what has to be done there and are failure so far to handle COVID. So yes, there is cause for optimism, but I don't think we should be under any illusion. It's going to be quite a tough ride for the next 10 years or so. And if we don't get in touch with it, in, 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 on top of it, then we could lead to what was once called a crowded, glowering planet of massive inequalities of wealth, buttressed by stark force, yet endlessly threatened by desperate people. That was written by an economic geographer, Edwin Brooks, 45 years ago, a very far-sighted person. And we had to be far-sighted in a way I think we have to look ahead. I have a definition of prophecy, and I define prophecy as suggesting the possible. And that is the phase we're in now, showing what we can do, so that when it becomes even more obvious we have to do it, people would be more willing to do it quickly. It's a hard task, but it's worth doing because there's no alternative. Yeah, I really I really love what you just said at the end there about, about prophecy and, and kind of forward-looking movements and, and using kind of the lessons um, and realizing that governments across across the world won't save us on, on climate climate change, on COVID, on the arms trade, and all of these are really intersecting issues. And we see too, a lot of the discourse, like as, as Nashua, we're both coming from what's so-called cult Canada here, which is kind of the imperial core of, of oil and the tar sands and, and climate breakdown on, on stolen Indigenous land. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of the, the deeper connections between the military industrial complex and also climate catastrophe because of course when you talk about climate change and and even solutions to climate change in, in more mainstream audiences we don't normally touch down this really massive link between you know if you want to fight for climate justice you absolutely have to fight to end and war specifically and i'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit too i think there are two elements to this one of course is that large militaries are themselves massive carbon emitters. And you know, a military industrial complex in the United States emits as much carbon as some quite sizable countries. So that's an issue, but I think it actually goes further than that. And if we look again at the nature of this military industrial complex in any one country, essentially, it is a kind of closed community with a very particular outlook. And obviously, if it is going to succeed, it has to sell arms, both to its own government and particularly to other governments as well. And that is a priority. It's a natural one. You expect it. It's not a question of evil people. It's a question of people not waking up to why this is so wrong and so short-sighted. But we constantly securitize things. And this, I think, is a really big issue with climate breakdown. Because essentially, from a military point of view, they are looking at what the impact of climate breakdown will be and how do they then keep the country safe from their own perspective? Not how do you prevent it becoming a problem in the first place? How do the military, if you can believe it, actually need to speak truth to power to the politicians? I've taught at many defence colleges, including two of the most senior ones in Britain, and I find the military will look ahead in a way that many other people won't. It's part of their culture in a way. 
and you can actually say, well, look, these are the problems you will face. And I'm warning you, you cannot cope by military means. You've actually got to prevent it happening. And in a sense, I think that is a, it's another very big part of the task because we're dealing with an entity worldwide, which is like a, a well, it's basically, I would use the term a war promoting hydra. It has to have enemies. And if, so basically, you have to securitize the threat from the climate. And essentially, it, does, it becomes not a normal personal enemy. But what it becomes is climate is basically causing these problems. Many countries will become very unstable. We will be threatened. We have to protect ourselves. And so it adds to the view that you have to look at it in the immediate sense in that way, and not in the absolutely important sense that we have to prevent it happening. You can do all the protection you like, but if you don't actually prevent further climate breakdown, everybody loses in the, in the long term. And in the short term, as more and more people have pushed to the margins, there are much more anger, bitterness, radicalization, and extremism. Naturally, this is what people feel they have to do to protect themselves and their families. So I think in, in a sense, it's part of a much bigger issue and one that I think many people are not wrestling with. We have to rethink security. There are a few think tanks doing it, the Rethinking Security one in Britain, but not enough and certainly not very many in many parts of the world. Thank you. And one thing I want to ask about was rethinking sanctions um, and how sanctions are pursued for a type of political ends, arguably, but what you think sanctions do in the world and the role of sanctions, especially the way that um, some of the most powerful countries in the world use sanctions. I think the issue is that sanctions come with economic and other forms of power. In other words, to use sanctions in virtually any sense, you have to be in a powerful position to do so. So the sanctions actually have an impact on the people or the governments that you are, if I may use the term, targeting. The problem with that is essentially some countries can do it much more effectively than others. There are instances, and I think particularly where you have appalling, basically, abuse of human rights, where sanctioning some government or body is valid. But I think it has to be done with great care. And in many cases, it just becomes a useful instrument of foreign policy, not of universal human rights. And there's a huge difference between those two. I think my my last question for you is just because it's so really interconnected to everything we've been talking about today. But the question of, of climate refugees and also the, the need for governments not only to um, take in more people displaced by wars, but also end their involvement that causes the displacement of these people in the first place in their home countries. And I'm wondering, again, if you can speak um, to the link between like internally displaced peoples or people displaced by war and also climate catastrophe. From the perspective of, you know, someone living in the UK, we're seeing the government of the UK really, uh, you know, crack down on refugees here in Canada, our, our government purports to support refugees, but does absolutely nothing to support them. So I'm just wondering if you could kind of all tie this together, uh, really from the perspective of fighting for, for climate justice, which includes justice for, for migrants as well, um, and keeping in mind that, that war and climate crisis are the, the main purveyors of refugees around the world. Until relatively recently, the issue of the impact of climate on refugee movements was relatively low. Wars were far more common and economic marginalization. People seeking refuge to, to get some kind of better life, often in the face of a drought, 
or some other disturbance. The issue I think now is becoming that climate breakdown will be a lead factor in people needing to move. It's as simple as that. We do know, and this is something which has really become more apparent in recent years, that the areas of the world that are going to be most affected by climate breakdown will be the tropics, the subtropics, and the near Arctic, uh, and probably the near Antarctic as well, the Paleoarctic in particular. And essentially, you're dealing with parts of the world where probably the majority of the entire world's population live in the tropics and subtropics. And we're already seeing people having to move more and more because of climate breakdown. And the problem with that is as people try to move, they try to find somewhere better to live. It's absolutely natural. But the countries in which they try to move resist this more than more. Most of them do. We have this extraordinary position in Britain where much of the government of the country as a whole is really very much in favour of controlling migration. Scotland, which is independent on this particular matter, actually needs new people. It's far more welcoming. So you can actually have a difference within even one country. But the problem is, if you look at it this way, if people are trying, say for the sake of argument, people are trying to get into Britain to have a better life, they will tend to work very hard. They will tend to end up in the areas where there are a lot of local people who are relatively marginalised. And it is very easy for a, an ambitious politician to use that for his or her own ends. We've seen it so often in Britain, in France, in, in the Netherlands, in Austria, and many other European countries. And essentially what you're doing, therefore, is seeing refugees as threats. It's almost unbelievable, but that is the case. Now, two things you have to do is try and work to make sure that such people who come are welcomed, that you do actually take more and actually explain to people why this is right and proper in a human rights sense. But the second thing is you have to move against the flows, the reasons. Obviously, wars, but also economic marginalisation and climate breakdown, all three link in together. And I think it's certainly the case that refugee movements, desperate movements of people, will essentially be one of the biggest challenges that we face, and it will get inevitably worse and worse. There is this curious belief in many countries across the North Atlantic and Western Europe that you can close the castle gates. If 9-11 showed one thing, it showed that you couldn't, that you know a very radical of an extreme group could hijack four large jet airliners, turn them into huge cruise missiles, and basically change the course of world security for the best part of a decade. You can't actually live in your own big bubble behind your own castle gates. And we just haven't learned that yet, in spite of all the warnings and all the work by so many people to try and make us see it. Thank you so much for your time today. Jen and I really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at the event on Saturday, July 17th, 4 p.m. London time. And if people want to find Paul online, we will put his Twitter in the show notes, but also it is at Prof P. Rogers. Thank you so much. Thank you indeed. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, everyone who listened. It was an absolute pleasure to work with Jen on this episode. And Jen, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Genevieve Joel. That's G-E-N-E-V-I-E-V-E-J-O-E-L-L-E. -E -E -E. And you can find this event by going to the Corbin Project website, which is thecorbinproject.com. And specifically, you can find this event either on our social media, the Corbin Project social media, 
or going in the search bar, thecorbinproject.com slash arms control. And that should take you directly to the arms control website sign up. Um, but we will also link that again on the, in the show notes as well. Yes. So I hope everybody checks out the show notes and they come to the event on Saturday. It will be a lot of learning that we all need, but also the speaker lineup is fantastic. And we were so grateful to have two of those speakers here today and the moderator. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I forgot to add that I will be helping to moderate the the sessions as well so that's very exciting and i hope to see you all there see you all saturday bye hey these episodes take a small team solo episodes are hosted by me Nashvalina khan american political episodes are co-hosted by dawson kimian canadian political and social movement episodes are co-hosted by ryan Deshpande. Other miscellaneous episodes around topics we like are hosted by a rotation of friends of Hibipti Please. Music and art for the show are by Post America, Canadian Dimension, and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Canadian Dimension, Andre Goulet, and Johnny Zapras. Production assistance is done by Ali McKnight, Kandil Imran, Raymond Hanano, and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us if you like the show and want to support the production of this small project. You can help fuel the team with chai and other fun things on Patreon at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us continue building this show and producing some unique content. Bye.